0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being with me this morning. Hope you're having a great Sunday morning. You had a good night's sleep, you're rested, and you're ready to open up your mind and learn some things this morning. As we continue in our series on some foundations, some basic beliefs, we're revisiting some of the ideas, some of the truths that have brought us to the place that we are now. I'm doing this series on, as I said last week, I hadn't planned on doing a series on Going back to the foundations, I call it stop the bus. Usually I stop the bus one week and just kind of do a catch up so everybody can get on board. But I felt in light of everything that's going on in the world and how fast revelation is flowing that I didn't want us to lose sight of what got us to where we're at. And so I'm I'm doing a series called Let's Believe It. And I'm just giving you I'm just revisiting, giving you some things to consider maybe taking some of those foundations a little bit deeper, a little bit wider. But I don't want us to lose uh, our Christocentricity. I don't want us to not ever become, where well, we're not Christ-centered or lose uh, fact of who Jesus is. I have so many people today that have deconstructed their entire faith, that once were strong grace people, but they've de- deconstructed everything to where they don't believe anything anymore. They've kind of wandered off looking here and looking there to try to find some reality to life, and they're not very happy. And I don't want that to happen to us at the Digital Cathedral. So this is part two on Let's Believe It. Last week, we just looked at some foundations of grace, and I challenged you to believe that grace was very simply the unconditional love of God toward us, unconditional. No, no hoops, no laws to keep. It's unconditional. When something's unconditional, it cannot have conditions. Grace is God's unconditional love toward us through which he bra- embraces all of us, all of humanity, and brings us into his very life. So I said, let's, let's just believe that. Let's take that as a foundation for grace. Unconditional love of God through which he embraces us and brings us into his very life. Now, this morning, I if I were to put a title on the message this morning, if I were just to give you my thesis i would say that it's this that if you believe right you'll live right so i want to talk a little bit this morning about how to make sure that we're believing the right things can i do that so let me kick off with second peter chapter 3 verse 18 last last verse that peter writes and i think like anybody when he when he when he finishes up his writing he's gonna he's gonna leave you with a thought that he wants you to not forget it's kind of like when you had kids that were old enough to stay home alone and you went out for the evening. The last thing that you told them was here's where we're at, here's the phone number, if you need something call us and don't let any strangers in the house. You told them exactly what you wanted them to not forget. So here's here's Peter's final final verse, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. And this is what he drops on them and I, I think he's saying guys don't, Irregardless, regardless of anything else, don't forget this. He says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's a, those are power twins. Grace and knowledge. And the knowledge he's talking about is not book learning necessarily. Uh, he's talking about revelation. He's talking about insight. You want to make sure that you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual growth, if we're going to grow in grace and knowledge, then we're going to have to come to a place in our development as manifesting sons and daughters to understand that spiritual growth is about change. You're going to be, you're going to undergo perpetual change in your life. If, if your eyes are open, spiritual eyes, and your ears are open and your, your consciousness, is susceptible to new truth you're going to be continually changing. So if what we believe this morning, if what you believe today is not expanding you, if what you believe is not changing you, then can I honestly tell you that you're not growing. If you believe exactly the same things today that you believed five years ago and you believe them exactly the same way, then you haven't grown any. When you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ you're going to grow and it's going to create change. So the the change that comes to us should be to crystallize what we believe. And when we crystallize what we believe, we should have a clear picture, which is going to then motivate us effortlessly to change the way that we live. That's a powerful thing about grace. Grace gives you tremendous security and liberty to expand and explore. Now, back in, in our religious days, we, we didn't expand. We didn't explore much. We found out what we were supposed to believe. And every book we read, check it out, every book we read affirmed what we already believed. <laughs> if you were in the Word of Faith movement, you only read Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagin, Jerry Savelle, Norville Hayes, been there, done that. I know how it works. If you were in a Baptist camp, then probably you listened to John MacArthur, Paul Washer. You had, you had specific people you only listen to Charles Stanley. What Charles Stanley said was the word, right? So there was no expansion because you were afraid that if you got outside that box of beliefs that you're going to get off into air. What grace does, grace frees us. I read a lot of stuff. I read wide. I read deep. Everything I read, I don't I don't teach because it doesn't resonate. It's, I, I, I read it. I see maybe what they're saying, but it doesn't mean I have to embrace it. But the point is I'm not afraid to do it. I'm not afraid to read authors that I may not agree with. I'm not afraid to watch a YouTube video of somebody that might be out there exploring some dimensions in the realms that I don't know anything about. I might look at some quantum physics. I might look at Wayne Dyer. I might read a book by Eckhart Tolle. That doesn't mean that I'm off into La La Land or out where the buffalo roam and the deer and the antelope play. It's just the freedom that you have because you're expanding and you're growing. We're on a journey. Sonship is a journey. And this journey should be a journey that brings us into an ever-increasing abundant life. It should be a, a life where we see the Father more clearly than we've ever seen him before. And as we see the Father more clearly, we see ourselves more clearly. And we understand that when he looked at us and said, very good, that we are very good. That there's anything we can do to enhance the very good. And we see ourselves as a part of that great puzzle that the Father has put together in his omniscient mind to create the universe and the plan that he desired from the very beginning. So believe right, live right. And when you when you grow, growth is triggered by believing. There's just no two ways around it. Growth is triggered by believing. Now let me read a verse from from Romans chapter 4. We're going to get into some good things this morning. So don't don't click me off just because you think you know everything we're talking about in these foundational messages because I will assure you the spirit of truth is going to teach you through this foundation some things that you hadn't thought about before. Look what it says in Romans chapter 4 verse 3. Romans chapter 4 verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and that was accounted him for righteousness. When Abraham believed God, his whole life changed. When Abraham believed God, his world took a refocus. Now, let's let's talk about believing for just a minute, because I think in in religious circles, the way that I always looked at believing for years and years is that it was an action that I had to perform. It it was an act of my will to believe. I, I had to say I believed it. That's not what real believing is. Believing that will increase your beliefs or enable you to live a life that's better than you're living now, let me say, let me define it for you. Here's what believing is. Here's what I've come to see believing is. Now you can take this or reject it. I think believing is an effortless response to revelation. Believing is an effortless response to new information that increases us. So when the revelation increases, when the quality of information that we have available to us increases, then we believe it. See, you, you may tell me that, uh, you know, I, I, go to, I go to the gym in the mornings. You may tell me at the gym that you can bench press 200 pounds. I, I may believe it or not. I may look at you and say, you don't look like you can. I'm not sure that that's true. But if I watch you bench press 200 pounds, I believe it because I have the information now, I have the revelation, I have the truth that what you told me is correct. So believing is an effortless response to revelation. I cannot make myself believe. I can't force myself to believe. I can say I believe and that's what that's why so many believers start out on shaky ground or they say they believe and then 90 days later we don't know where they're at because they didn't really believe it It wasn't revelation, it wasn't truth to them. I think it's fair to say this morning, for the sake of our study at least, that if you believe wrong, if you have a wrong set of beliefs, it's going to be hard to live the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. I'm living more abundantly today than I've lived in my entire life. And it's not because I'm striving. It's not because I'm working at it. It's because I'm seeing more. And as I see more, I believe more. See, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you see it, then it's possible for you to believe it. So when you believe right, you simply live right according to the plan that God has for you. The plan for me is different than the plan for you. So as he reveals and shows me truth about me, as he shows me truth about himself, I adjust. I can change and therefore I believe. But if you believe wrong, if you believe wrong, here's, here's the progression of it. Follow me through on this. If you believe wrong, you're going to struggle with wrong thoughts. You're going to think thoughts based upon what you believe. And if you think wrong thoughts, the wrong thoughts are going to produce wrong feelings. If you have wrong thoughts, the feelings that will produce in your life will be things like shame, condemnation, guilt, uh, and those, those feelings of shame, doubt, guilt, unbelief, they will ultimately produce wrong actions wrong behaviors, wrong addictions. you become addicted to things you don't need to become addicted to, like fear, doubt, unbelief, it's addictive. Religion can become an addiction. You can become addicted through religion to fear, to guilt, to condemnation, and you need that fix every Sunday. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm gonna tell you something about me, all right? Back in the day, when I was teaching law and grace, mixing it up, when I was teaching behavior modification, I would teach people that they were missing God, that there was sin in their life, that they weren't doing everything that they needed to do, that if they would pray more, fast more, give more, do more, be more committed, that God would bless them. And do you know some of those messages that I really put the hammer down and and put guilt on people? Do you know that sometimes after the service, I I won't say sometimes, most every time after the service, people would come to me and say, Pastor, that was such a powerful message. That was such a good message. And I would say, thank you, I appreciate that. You know what that did? That fed the fuel in me to come back and lay it down harder. But you know what they needed? They needed to come in every Sunday and for me to give them their guilt fix. (laughs) For me to give them their condemnation fix so that they could feel worthless, they could feel unworthy, that they would never amount to anything, that they were missing it someplace. And so when I would come in and I would say, look, you need, here's three steps, you need to follow these three steps if you're gonna have a successful prayer life and if you're not praying like this, if you're not living like this, then you're missing God. And so they would go home and they would try to practice those things and they would fail. And they would feel guilty for failing and when they would come back the next Sunday, they they would get their next fix. I'll tell you this, if you're experiencing guilt, fear, condemnation, doubt, if you're experiencing any of those feelings, it's a good indication that you have been injected, (laughs) that you've been inoculated with some wrong beliefs and you've been fed by wrong information. Most likely it's been wrong teaching. And I know because I did some wrong teaching with a good heart for years and for years and for years. So let's begin to believe. Let's believe it this morning. Let's believe in the Father's love for us and let's enter into a life that can be totally transformed by that love. We're gonna believe right, we're gonna act right. See, right believing is what takes you to the abundant life. There's no two ways about it. So if you can change what you believe, Here's, here's my thesis, remember? If you, can, if you can believe right, you will change your life. What you, what, what you believe is what you're going to live. Maybe that makes more sense to you this morning. What you're believing this morning is what you're actually living out. So if I can help you here at the Digital Cathedral to adjust your belief system that will coincide with the, with the, with the nature of the Father, then it will improve your lifestyle. And let me just inject this right here. It's, it's not ungodly, it's not unrighteous. There's nothing wrong about changing what you believe. You should be changing what you believe. If you have the same set of beliefs that you've had all your life, which happens in denominational Christianity, we get our beliefs boxed up, we believe this about Jesus, we believe this about the Father, we believe this about salvation, we believe this about end times, this is what we believe. We come back every week and we just hear a confirmational bias teaching that reaffirms everything that we already believe. You're not changing, you're not growing. One of the chief false beliefs that is so deeply embedded within us, and I wanna change that this morning, causes a lot of difficulty, causes a lot of undue grief. The belief is this, and it comes from bad information. We believe that God loves us when we do right. God loves us if we don't sin. God loves us if we sacrifice for him. God loves us if we do more for him. That puts a smile on God's face. We all cut our religious teeth on that. Absolutely all of us did. I don't. If you're, if you're gonna shoot me straight this morning, you grew up in the church or spent a lot of years in the church, we cut our teeth on that, that God responds to our obedience. God responds to our keeping the rules. God responds to our sacrifice. But if you're not obedient, if you're rebellious, if you don't follow instructions, then there is a sense that God pulls back. He withdraws his presence from you until you're sorrowful, until you repent, until you come down to the altar, ball your eyes out and tell God you'll never do it again, which is a setup for failure because you will. Our love for him sometimes fluctuates. Our love for him sometimes is based on what we think he wants from us like our obedience. So when we look at our life, say, I'm not obedient. I know I'm rebelling. I'm not doing what I should be doing. We, be, we begin to question his nearness to us. We begin to feel separation from him. And we begin to project our feelings onto God, like maybe God is as fickle as I am. People tell me I, I don't feel God's presence. And you know why they don't? It's because they feel they're lacking in some some area. They're not fully understanding grace. Grace is that unconditional love that God gives toward us that embraces us and brings us into his very life. You cannot escape it. It's too late. You can't reject it. If you try to reject it, it's too late. He's already already included you. He's already encompassed you. He's already encircled you. Let me assure you of something this morning. God's love for you is consistent. God's love for you is constant and you cannot get outside of it he's omnipresent you cannot escape his presence and his presence is love God is love God is there's no definition of God in the Bible that says God is wrath or God is angry that's what we've placed on him based on our actions that we feel he's going to react to us all right this is this is basic foundations this morning look what it says in Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8 some of these things we need to never forget and we need to rehearse them because they're true. Verse 38, I'm persuaded neither death, nor watch all these things, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He runs through a list that's pretty doggone inclusive. All of the questions I got this week and I get questions every week about what I teach or other things. spent a lot of time answering questions. It was amazing this week because I know what I was going to teach. The questions I got this week all centered around the fact can God really love me? What about if I do this? How about this scripture? How about that scripture? What if I foul up here? What is what is the unpardonable sin? See there's we always are looking Because religion has groomed us that way. They've made us feel that way. If this takes place, that takes place, is God still going to love me? Religion has done a good job of what we call eisegeting scripture. Eisegeting, there's two words, eisegeting, exegeting. I'll probably hit both of them this morning just to show you I did go to school. Eisegeting, when you eisegete scripture, what it means very simply is that you look through a lens of preconceived ideas when you read a verse of scripture. And we've done that all of our religious life. Church groomed us to do that. It groomed us to look at a scripture through a prescribed set of lenses, through a belief system, through what we already believe, and that's called eisegesis. So when you look at a verse of scripture you're already reading into it what you believe. One of the best things that you can do is begin to take post-resurrection scripture, from 1 Corinthians all the way through Paul's writings, and read it like you don't know anything. Read it it like you have never read it before. Read it again for the first time. And you're going to be amazed at the things you pick up out. Be willing, with an open mind, just read what it says. See, the presumptions that we read the Scripture with always has the condition that places His love to us on a condition because we've been groomed to do that. The condition is always something we failed to do, something we haven't done, something we've done wrong. We we have been hammered with with loopholes to unconditional love. One One of the things that happens all the time when people first come into this message, see, we defined grace last week and I said, let's believe grace like this. Let's believe it as the unconditional love toward us that embraces us and brings us into his life. One of the first things people do is say, well, what about this scripture? What about that scripture? How about this verse? And even people that have been in grace for a while, they're always trying to look for a loophole scripture. Stop doing that. Why why do we look for loopholes that try to put us outside of this embracing of our life by unconditional love from the Father that brings us into his life? Why do we look for loopholes for that rather than look for scriptures that That confirm it. Why don't why don't we get all bent out of shape about scriptures like God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the entire world the entire cosmos to himself. What? how about scriptures that say as in Adam all die even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Why don't we why don't we center up on those scriptures when we come into this message. It's because we've been groomed and programmed to look for the loophole. We eisegete. We look at a scripture with a preconceived. And if I have time this morning, I'm going to get over and look at a section of scripture from Hebrews chapter 10 that we've done that very thing to. So the presumption is that God becomes angry. God becomes upset with us. He's full of wrath and vengeance at the drop of a hat if we foul up. And that believing creates a life that is wrong, that cannot be the abundant life. Scripture clearly tells us to give up on our self-efforts, to give up on our do and begin to believe he's done. Begin to believe that he's justified us. Let me give you a verse of scripture. You, your pastor never taught you this back when you were going to church, but it's just as clear and as crystal. I've never had one person ever say, what about this scripture? What, can this be right? Look at look at Romans chapter four, verse five. Romans chapter four, verse five. Some of you the lights going to turn on with this verse. But to him who does not work, do you know what a work is? A work is anything that you do that makes you dependent on your ability. Whether it's your prayer, praying the magic prayer, calling down the sky Jesus to live in your heart, that's what you're doing, that's a work. But to him who does not work but believes on him, watch, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. The God who justifies The ungodly. Now Let me me make sure you got that right. Let me make sure you heard that. Who does God justify? He justifies the ungodly. That's the gospel. That's good news. Unconsciously, you don't believe that. Because nobody ever taught you that verse. Unconsciously, you believe that you've got to be godly and then he justifies you. You were taught in church that you need to stop sinning. You need to start living right. You need to start living by the laws and the rules and the regulations. And then when you meet the requirements, or at least after you pray the magic prayer, you better start living right. As soon as you, see, we we sing the song, Just As I Am Without One Plea, to get you to the altar. But as soon as you pray the magic prayer, then all of a sudden it becomes, you need to do this. You need to tithe. You need to be to church. You need to go to Sunday school. You need to come to prayer meeting. You need to start enhancing your prayer life. You better read your Bible every day. All of a sudden, we start imposing all of these laws on people. God made it his business to justify those that miss the mark. God made it his business to justify those people that have failed, that have fallen short, made mistakes, that have sinned, that know they fouled up. And you got no vote in it. Nothing in Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says you you had to make a free will decision. It's just God's sovereign choice. <laughs> oh my. I'm glad we're visiting some of these foundations again. We need to hear this again for the first time. So, apart from religion, that one verse ought to give us hope. If all you ever had was somebody cut that one verse out, Romans chapter 4, verse 5, that should give you tremendous hope. So let's let's see if we can adjust our our Thinking what we believe so that we can adjust our lifestyle. Just a couple of questions Just a couple of questions because it's hard. I understand it's hard to transcend your spiritual ideal Ideology when it's been ingrained one way for years and for years and for years. it's when you've been when you've based it on on one Concept your whole life when you base salvation on on one formula and that's what we've narrowed it down to is being a formula So the the question is this, how do we leave that old theology? How do we bust out of that old belief system? How can we begin to believe right so that we can live right? How can we be completely comfortable with these grace teachings, with these finished work of the cross teachings? How can I be totally comfortable with that? When Jesus said, it is finished, that there was nothing I could add to his finished. There comes a day, I'll tell you how it happens there comes a day that you realize that you can never be good enough and the bigger your ego is the bigger your pride is the longer it's going to take for you to come to the end of yourself and realize I cannot make it on my own I I, there's always another rule to keep there's always another I fasted three days maybe I should have fasted ten I tithe ten percent maybe if I tithe 15 it would open the windows of heaven I go to church every time the doors are open. Maybe I should start a home study. See, there's always something more to do that we feel we need to to, to perform to satisfy God if it's not working for us. And to keep doing the same thing over and over again and it's not working ought ought to tell us something. I have found this, everybody that transitions out of what I call the carrot and the stick gospel. You know, the carrot is heaven. We make it all about who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. Whoever transforms out of that carrot and stick gospel, the carrot is heaven, the stick that they beat you with is the fear of going to hell. So we keep beating you with that stick to make sure you try to reach the carrot. But it's on, you know, it's always in front of you. You never quite get there. You're never confident that you've got it. Everybody that comes into this grace culture, this finished work belief system, goes through culture shock. And there comes a day that you realize you can never be good enough. You can't make it on your own. I think, I think first you begin to see some things in your spirit. This is how it happened to me. I begin to see some things in my spirit that drew me. The, the thing that drew me was finally I came to a place where I realized that salvation was not based on my do. It was based on Jesus done. And he had already provided, and I needed to just open my eyes to that. That appealed to my spirit. That resonated deeply, but my head immediately fought it. My head said, no, that can't be right. You know you know, you got to stick to the formula. you got to take him down the Romans road. you got to take him through evangelism explosion. You know, if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Then you have to pr- prove you prayed the prayer, that you accepted Jesus, whatever it is. It never could be just based on what he has done had to be something I had to do. So grace starts in your spirit. It starts in your spirit, then it spreads to your head. We used to teach this that it needs to drop truth needs to drop from your head to your heart. That's, that's backwards. What I have found that real spiritual truth begins internally. You begin to be drawn to something, but your head fights it. Your head says, no, that can't be right. I, I, I've never was taught that. I, that, that doesn't make sense. That's not scriptural, not scriptural. What I'm saying is it's not scriptural based on the way I've always viewed scripture. But when you begin to believe right, you're gonna put on new lens, you're gonna see scripture you never saw before, like Romans four or five. You're gonna see scripture through entirely different mindset, through different lens, and that's gonna change your life. So it starts in your spirit. You begin to see things, you're drawn to it, but your your mind because it's run over you know that wheel has run run over that that path so long that it's worn deep within you and it's hard to pull out of it but for me in my life and and, and I've heard the testimony from other people too and it's much the same there's two or three things that begin to to drop into our spirit that begin to make sense spiritually maybe not to our minds but spiritually First thing was for that hit me after grace. After I I got past this thing that I could I had to earn my way. I had to merit it. I had to I had to cowboy up some way. You know I had to I had to to prove. First thing it began to dawn on me after I see saw that the Father embraced me through unconditional love into His life. That man that was freedom. I felt like a thousand pounds had been taken off my shoulders. And then what began to hit me was this in my spirit I began to see. A revelation of the fatherhood of God that he was a good father and I've told you this story before but I used to sit in my, my office with a legal pad and I would write down what a good father looks like, characteristics of a good father. How did a father act toward his children? How, how did a father demonstrate his love toward his, his children? I would meditate on what a perfect father was toward his offspring and that began to open the door to me to the love of the Father on a very personal level, and I began to ask myself, what is the attitude of a good Father? What are the actions of a good Father? What are the limits? How does a good Father correct his children? Would I, as just a human father, would I ever, regardless of what my two daughters did to me, would I ever, would I ever put them into a eternal, customized torture chamber where they would be? burned for eternity while I partied upstairs with my friends. Would I ever do that as a good father? Is that how a good father acts? Absolutely not. How would a how would a good father what well, wouldn't a good father do with all all within his power to protect his children, preserve them, make sure that ultimately, ultimately, their life changed, that ultimately they would see the truth. So my understanding of the width of God's fatherhood, the depth of God's fatherhood took on a tremendous different Dimensions and I begin to see listen This will change the way you live if you believe this I begin to see that he was not just the father of Christians Again Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6 Your pastor doesn't teach on this, but you know what it says. It says that there is one God and father of all who is above all through all and in all Paul confirmed that in Acts when he went and and spoke to the idol-worshipping Athenians on Mars Hill. And he said that it's in God that we live. It's in God we move and have our being. Paul didn't bust out and tell them they were headed for hell. He began to explain to them and that resonated with them. And some followed Paul as a result of that. So that, that for me was huge. It was the fatherhood of God and that began to open up a lot of other things. I wasn't trying to confess my way in. I wasn't trying to to believe my way in. I let the revelation unfold and then the believing was effortless. What a revelation it is to believe and know that he made the sovereign choice to be the father of mankind. That my father in heaven has taken responsibility for every person that he's ever created. Every child that's on the planet, the earth belongs to the Lord and all that dwell therein. What is that? Psalm 24, one, something like that. That's what Jesus came to do. The father came in flesh form in Jesus to model for us and show us what the father is like. You don't find Jesus one time. There's not one verse of scripture where Jesus ever condemned a prostitute, uh, Zacchaeus that that was robbing people blind. He called Matthew, who was a tax collector, a despised man. There's not one verse that Jesus ever told people that were living what we would call a sinful life in the evangelical church that they're headed for hell. The only people Jesus ever threatened were the the Pharisees, the religious people, and he threatened them with Gehenna, which was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. He was telling them, look, if you guys don't repent, there's going to be a sweeping change that comes in. I'm going to talk to you about that in just a minute. Once I got that down, once I got the fatherhood of God down, then I began to see something else. I began to see that my identity is divinity. This changed the way I live, man. This changed my level of confidence. I wasn't confidence in me, I was confident in my identity. Genesis chapter two, verse seven, was a verse that transformed my life when I believed. I saw it, once I saw it, I could not unsee it. Genesis two, seven says that God breathed the breath of life into man. That breath of life that he breathed into man was his very essence. Some people have challenged me on essence. I believe we have the essence of God himself. Everything in that breath is who God is. Every characteristic of God came through that breath of life. He breathed into us. Jesus said, John, what is it? John chapter 20, verse 22, somewhere along He breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, receive the life. Paul said, uh, Uh, When it pleased the Father to reveal the Christ that was in me, always been in us, I began to see that my identity because of my origination, image and likeness of God with breath of God blown into me, I began to see myself in an entirely different light. Sonship to me took on an entirely different dimension, it elevated, I'm not bringing God down, I'm not bringing Jesus down, I'm bringing you and myself to the position to where we need to be which is having an identity as divinity with the breath of God, everything that God is, his love, his, his, his understanding, having the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ. We operate as a partaker of the, the divine nature. Then I'd be third thing that really hit me was I meditated on the finished work of Jesus. When Jesus said it's finished, I asked myself one day, what can I add to Jesus finished? Do you think my prayer is going to change his finish? When Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished. And as the Holy Spirit reveals to you, as he did to Paul, pure grace apart from effort, you will become more like, you'll stop being the Martha that's trying to work. You know, Martha's out in the kitchen making a platter of sandwiches that Jesus never asked for. And that's what I did for 50 years of my life. I ran around doing good things, trying to please Jesus, making a platter of, of sandwiches on a party tray that Jesus never wanted. When I should have been with Mary, just sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from Jesus, letting him impart to me who he is. That would make me believe and that would change my life. That would make me change and, and, and change my life. See, when you, when you become the Mary and not the Martha, your love for yourself and the love for other people, and the love for the Father goes off the chart because you've seen it now. You're experiencing it, therefore you can live it. You know you're making progress. You know you're heading in the right direction. When you, when you begin to see scripture, when you begin to read your Bible with new eyes, verses appear you never saw before. Old verses take on new meaning. Let me Let me give you a passage of scripture. I've got about maybe about 10 minutes left. Indulge me here. Let me walk you through a passage of scripture that has caused wrong believing, therefore wrong living. But when I unwind this for you, it's going to change you. Some of you going to have stumbled on this. I've gotten all kinds of questions on Hebrews chapter 10. So I decided I'm going to take this. I have never done this on Hebrews 10, I'm going to take it, unwind it for you because people have get tripped up on some of the couple of the verses in Hebrews 10. Let me just lay this out for you. And I I want to change what you believe, so change what you, the way that you live. Right believing creates right living. So everything I've talked about this morning should help you to generate a right belief system. A belief system that's not under law, it's under grace. It's under that divine influence that produces effortless change as we rest in him. You're changing, but it's not because you've tried to. It's not because you're disciplined. It's not because uh, uh, your dedication, your commitment. It's because you're resting in him. And as you rest in him, effortless change transpires. And you look in the mirror one day, and all of a sudden you're different. You find your your actions are different, your attitudes are different, your character is changing, not because you've tried to, but because of the work of his grace within you. And as a result of that, the way that you live changes, right? Look, Look with me for just a few minutes at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 29. It says this, and this is a verse that really has caught people. It says in verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains a, there, remains, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I kind of stumbled. Let me read it again. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Boy, that verse has put, put fear, condemnation, doubt into people. Let me read on but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries anyone who has rejected Moses law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses how much more worse punishment do you suppose will he be through worth he be thought worthy who has trampled the son of God underfoot counting the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace man we have taken those three verses and we have we have just beat people with them. What do those verses actually mean? How can we look at those verses through the lens of grace? Because we use those verses in in the evangelical word to bring a ton of doubt, bring fear, bring insecurity to people. They're used to teach people that 26 verse especially is used to teach people that buddy if you sin after you know the truth You're on shaky ground and there's no more sacrifice for sin for you. But what you're going to face is an angry God, judgmental, disappointed in you, distant from you. He's just waiting to get his pound of flesh from your disobedient, worthless self. So you better not die in that condition. You better get down the altar, better pray, better ask God to save you again, because if you die in that condition, you're going to hell. You're going going to hell. Let's just look at this. I did a series several years ago I'll it Uncorking Your Bible. And what I did, I think it's there's five parts to the series. You ought to re- look at it if you haven't looked at it. And what I did is I taught a series of messages about how to rightly divide scripture. It's, it's a course in hermeneutics actually, Bible interpretation. And I won't get into everything I did there, but there's, there's two elements I want to bring out. There's two questions that you need to ask yourself every time you read scripture, two questions. Number one, who was it written to? And number two, why was it written? That's called exegesis. Eisegesis is when you look at a passage of scripture with a preconceived idea and notion. You already wanted to say what you wanted to say. Exegesis is when you look at it and you ask yourself, who was this written to? Number one, and why was it written? So let me just answer those two questions. Let me put your mind at ease about something this morning. Let me help you to believe right so you can live right. The book of Hebrews was written to first century Jews, flat out Jews. The book was written to Jewish people. The book of Hebrews is all about helping first century transitional people, Jews that lived on both sides of the cross, lived on both in both covenants. It was written to Jews in particular that were moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. So everything in Hebrews, the terms, the phrases, everything in the book is to a specific group of people. Is not even to you Gentiles. Now you can pull a lot of good truth out of the book of Hebrews, but you need to understand first of all, it's written to Hebrew people. The writer of Hebrews is telling the readers of the book that there is a new covenant, that there's a, a new priest, that there's a new sacrificial system. And he went over that in chapter 8. In chapter 8, he's already laid the foundation down. Now, just stay with me because I'm going to help you on this. Let me read chapter 8, verses 7 to 13. Jewish people, Jewish mindset, lived on both sides of the cross. They're coming out of the old covenant into the new covenant. They are making a transition. right, let me pick this up. He says, for if that first covenant had been flawless, then there would be no need for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There's a whole lot in that. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord I will put my laws in their mind write them in their hearts I will be their God they'll be my people none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete now that What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So what's he saying in in chapter 8, verses 7 to 13 to the Jews? He's saying there's a new sheriff in town. It's Jesus. He's the new high priest. And there's a brand new covenant. It's not like the old covenant based on laws. There's a new covenant and he said, I'm going to be here's the covenant. I'm going to be merciful to your to your unrighteousness, your sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So that's absolutely contrary to what the first covenant was. It's tailor made to Jewish mindset and Jewish understanding. That answers the who, right? That I want you to if you'll never get Hebrews, if you're going to try, see, one of the problems we make is that we try to make every scripture fit us today. We try to bring every verse out of the Bible and apply it to today. You cannot do that. It wasn't written to you. It wasn't written with your understanding and mindset. So that's who it was written to. Now, why was it written? Why was it addressing? What was it addressing? In light of who it was written to. We know who it was written to. What's he trying to say? Here's what was going on. Many Jews began to follow Jesus, right, and that met with a lot of persecution. They were not happy. The traditional Jews were not happy when Jewish people left the Jewish faith and began to follow Jesus. They left Judaism. And so they they turned the heat upon those ones that began to follow Jesus, and they used shame. They used, you know, guilt. They said you're following a cult, that Jesus is not the Messiah, that Paul is a heretic, he has absconded from the Jewish faith and tradition, do not believe what Paul says. They use the same thing that religion uses on you today when you move into grace and the finished work of the cross, begin to see unconditional love, mercy that endures forever, they warn you and say that's wrong teaching, that's false, you're getting into a cult, that Keithley guy over there, he's, he's a heretic, don't follow what he says. Did the same thing to Jesus, did the same thing to Paul. So in the 10th chapter, the writer is saying, guys, there's nothing to go back to. There's nothing to go back to. The old is gone and the new has come. Now, let me just walk you through those verses, 26, seven, and eight, and you'll see exactly what the writer of Hebrews was addressing to these first century Jewish believers. I might run a couple of minutes over today, but I think this is worth your getting. Look what he says in verse 26, chapter 10 I'm into this I'm not going to stop till I get done verse 26 for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth there remains no more sacrifice for sins so when you when you've moved from the old covenant to the new covenant and some of these Jewish believers they went back to the old they succumbed to the pressure just like people do today they come into the grace message they come into truth they come into Liberty And people pressure them and they go back to religion. Some of these first century Jews went back to Judaism. They went back and so he's telling them in that 26th verse that after you sin willfully, after you've received the knowledge of the truth that the old covenant is gone, there's a new priest, there's no more sacrifice for sin. You you can't take a bull or a goat or whatever they took Over to the priest and have him slay it to cover your sin. It's gone. There's no more sacrifice for sin. There's no more sacrifice for sin. If you sin willfully, there's nothing you can do under the old that's going to bring that covering of sin. It has passed away. It's gone. It's leaving. And it finally did in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. There was no more animal sacrifices after 70 AD. Objectively, the old covenant was done away with at the cross for the Jews. Subjectively, it didn't vanish till 70 AD. There was no more temple worship. There was no more temple sacrifice. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, guys, it's a new day. So if you sin, there's no more sacrifice that you've always relied on for sin. In, 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 In chapter 10, verses 11, 12, and 13, watch. Every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. He's saying that priest over there that slain those animals and never took away your sin, it covered them. Jesus' blood does not cover sin, it eradicates it. Makes it as though it never were. It justifies you. Verse 12, but this man, Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies be made his footstool. Verses 11, 12, and 13, he's telling the Jews, look, it's finished. You're going to have to rely on the sacrifice of Jesus. This man made one sacrifice for sins forever. So he's telling the Jews there's nothing to go back to. You're going to have to trust this one sacrifice the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the entire world. That's where your trust needs to be. So if you don't opt out for Jesus then Mr. Jew he's saying Mr. Jew according to tradition without a sacrifice for sin. You're in for a heap of trouble. And so he says that in verse 27. Chapter 10 verse 27. A certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation which will devour the adversaries because there's no sacrifice for sin so he saying if you thought there was a bad time hap- going to happen to you under the old covenant because there's no sacrifice for sin you didn't make a sacrifice for sin he goes on and says in verse 28 how much more do you think if that if you thought that was going to punish you then brother you ought to look at this one and think that the punishment's going to be greater it's not going to be obviously because he he goes on and encourages them and tells him in chap. he's already laid down in chapter 8 and verse 12 that that god will remember your sins and transgressions no more the slate's been wiped clean but he's making a point in this 10th chapter verses 27 and 8 that if you broke the law under Moses, you'd be killed, you'd be stoned. There was retribution that God would pay towards you. And if you thought that was bad, then you ought to think it's even worse if you trample underfoot the the, the Son of God and the blood that he said shed that will cover all sins. But he had already laid the foundation in chapter 8 that that wasn't going to happen. The writer Hebrews is just making a point that this is a better covenant, made with better blood, better sacrifice, better priest. Then he exhorts them in verses 35 and 39 to continue on. Don't give up. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the law. He says this, verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you receive the promise. For yet a little while and he is coming that will come and he will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, But if anyone draws back, goes back to the old way, my soul takes no pleasure in him. But we are not of those that draw back, the writer says. We are not of those that go back to the old. We're not going back to religion. We're not going back to the evangelical church. We're not going back to begging and squalling and bawling and pleading for God to forgive our sins. See, that's our sacrifice. We don't sacrifice bulls and goats. Our sacrifice is we weep and weep and weep and are sorrowful and tell God we'll never do it. We'll never commit that terrible sin again. That's our sacrifice. We're not of those that go back to perdition. We're not of those that are going back to religion. But we believe in the saving of the soul through the one sacrifice. So here's what I'm, here's what I'm trying to get across to you so that you believe right and can live right. Don't let anybody snatch a scripture up like this Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 to 29 that's been used by the church to just beat the stuffing out of people. Don't let anybody snatch up a scripture and create fear and insecurity in your father. Most of Western Christianity is built on that foundation of fear and creating separation. But Paul told us there is no separation, can't be any separation from anything the sinning willfully in verse 26 some have used in the church to try to put fear in your life try to make you feel condemned make you feel insecure like man have I gone too far that leads you then to think you've committed the unpardonable sin so let's all agree on something let's all believe this morning in the Father's love that first John chapter 4 and verse 18 and 19 says perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment if you are fearful of any torment at any time from a father that loves you unconditionally then it's just an indication that you're believing wrong because fear has torment and there's no torment in perfect love there's no fear in perfect love that's why you have been living you've been living in fear You've been living in judgment. You've been living in condemnation. You've been living in doubt because you have not been believing right. The right believing in unconditional love, 1 John four 18, will take that fear and cast it out because fear has torment. And verse 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. He has always been the initiator. You have never initiated anything in this relationship. I'm helping you to believe right so you can live right. You've never, you've never initiated anything in the relationship. We love him because he first loved us. We follow him because he drew us to himself, right? Anything that brings fear, doubt, sense of separation, puts you in an unworthy light, pictures you outside of Christ, says you're not a child of God, write it down, take it to the bank, That's the roar of a toothless religious lion. Whatever the fear peddlers are selling, don't buy it. God will never be your tormentor. God will never damn you. God will never separate from you. It takes a stronger right belief to replace a wrong belief to get you into living right to living this effortless life of love and grace that Jesus came to impute to us. So whatever is good, pure, perfect, lovely, and of a good report, believe in that and live according to that thing. All right. I'm over time this morning. Please forgive me, but I had to get this all out. This was an important, absolutely important teaching. Next week, I want to, we're going to continue with, let's believe it. And I want to, I want to talk about seeing God in the right light. I want to talk about seeing God in a right dimension. So don't miss next week. This is a great series. Let me tell you something. This is a great series to bring new people into that are beginning to wonder, beginning to question, beginning to see things in their spirit, the lights turning on. This is a good series to bring them into and introduce them to this message in the digital cathedral. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so that you'll be notified whenever we do a new teaching. Be sure to hit like, I appreciate that. It helps my all logarithms to get positioned so that I pop up for people that are looking for grace or freedom. I I pop up much quicker. Make sure that you leave a good comment uh, when we're done so that uh, other people will read the comments and be interested in seeing what we're saying. God love you. Thank you for your help, your love, your support. We'll see you next Sunday morning at the Digital Cathedral, same time, Wednesday night, at The Secret Place. Thank you for being with me. God bless.